I really wanted to take a moment to tell you about next weekend because I do not want you to miss it and you are not going to want to miss it. It's going to be very, very powerful and deeply personal. Nancy's best friend from high school, a man named Paul, and his wife had a son they loved very much who became addicted to opioids and they lost him. He died. And then Paul developed Parkinson's and in a life of unbelievably heroic hope, he spends most of his time uh, trying to pour hope into young addicts and into their families. I'm going to tell that story next week. We actually had Nancy and a film crew go back to Ohio. Uh, it will be about God. It will be about finding hope in the very darkest place. Sometimes hope is a word that can sound chirpy to people. Not here. It will be about friendship and the power of enduring friendship. It will be about how God can speak into any life. It will be about how God can use your deepest, darkest suffering, precisely that, to bring caring to somebody else in a way that you couldn't if you hadn't suffered. Hope has never been more needed than it is right now. Not just because of COVID. There was an article this week, a Harvard research study, uh, that looked at what are called despair, uh, deaths of despair. Uh, recently, we had a three-year period where, for the first time in a century, the lifespan of the average American actually got shorter. Now, when that happened a century ago, it was because of the Spanish flu. Today, it's not because of COVID virus. It's because of what are being called deaths of despair. Deaths due to suicide, uh, alcoholism, and addiction. We live in a day when our lives, especially those of our young people, are literally being shortened by despair. And we're going to talk about all that head on. You need to watch this if you have a family. Watch it with your family. We're going to provide a framework, questions for parents to have conversations with children. Tell friends. Tell other people that you know. I want everybody that we can reach to be reached with this message. I'll see you then. Now, I want to start with these words from the Apostle Paul that we're living with these days. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I hope God's doing that for you. We've been learning we need hope because we can't not think about the future, but also we can't control the future. We've learned Christian hope is built on the resurrection of Jesus, and it is at the core of flourishing human life. We've learned how to measure our hope levels. I hope you're doing that. How to take responsibility for our hope, to keep hope alive. And now, today, this weekend, is Mother's Day. So you might think hope would be real simple. Every mom with kids who have grown up and gone away hopes they'll come back for a day. Every mom who have kids that have been home every day for two months hopes they'll go away for a day just for the rest. But when you've worked at a church for a while, you realize how not simple Mother's Day is. Some people are grieving their mom. A friend of mine just lost his mom this week, so this is a real bittersweet day. Some women want so badly to be moms but can't. Some moms are estranged from their children. Some women choose not to be moms and often feel overlooked or devalued on this day. Some people have had a very painful relationship with their mom. A friend of mine at an old church called this caveat day because there were so many sensitive situations that need to be named. So what we're going to talk about today on caveat day is what to do with hope when what you hoped for has not happened. 
Lou Smeads wrote that there was an old cavalry motto, when your horse dies, dismount and saddle another. And that's true of hopes too. You can't ride a dead hope any more than you can ride a dead horse. Life, Lou said, life is a series of hope adjustments. So what do you do when reality is not what you hoped it would be? Not going to have kids, or not going to get married, or not going to have the marriage that you wanted, or not going to get into that school, or have that career, or going to have that illness, or that disease, or that problem that I most wanted not to have. When your life doesn't adjust itself to fit your hopes, how do you adjust your hope to fit your life? And the Bible has a story about a woman like that. Her name was Naomi. She had a husband and two boys, and they lived in Israel, but there was a famine. And so they had to leave their land and emigrate to Moab, where they hoped to live as resident aliens until they could afford to move back. While they were there, Naomi's husband died. She married her two sons off to two Moabite girls, hoping they would raise families and be able to take care of her. But after 10 years and no grandchildren, first her older and then her younger son died as well. A person who's lost their home is called an alien. A woman who has lost her husband is called a widow. A child who has lost their parents is called an orphan. There is no word for a parent who has lost a child. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it seems to violate the natural order of things. Some of you know that pain. Now, all of this happens in only the first five verses of the book. And the widow Naomi decides she will return to Israel. There's no heir. That means that the family she and her husband began is at an end. That means in a land-based economy like theirs, their old land is gone forever. That means in a patriarchal society like theirs, there will be no status for her, no safety net for her, no belonging for her. She has to adjust to the loss of virtually every one of her hopes. She tells in a very poignant moment her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, that they should stay behind, live in Moab, find new husbands, start new families. And they weep together with her. They weep for their dead husbands. They weep for their childless lives. They weep for one another. Her two daughters-in-law offer to go with her, but Naomi won't hear of it. Naomi says, even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grew up? No, my daughters, it is bitter for me, than, more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Now, if you're following along in your Bibles, you want to circle that word hope in verse 12, because in all the Bible, the book who has influenced how people think about hope more than any other book in world history, this is the first time the word hope occurs in Scripture. For Naomi, who has none, even if I thought there was hope for me, which she does not, life is bitter. The Lord's hand has turned against me. Think about that. Go home. And one of them does. 
Orpah kisses her goodbye and goes home to Moab to find another husband and start another family and become a famous celebrity TV talk show host. Uh, Orpah actually, Oprah was actually named for Orpah with a slight misspelling. But Ruth will not listen. Ruth will not go back. And she says these unforgettable words that are so beautiful, I want to read them from the old King James Version. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Who is this woman? Now, in the Old Testament, Abraham is often taken as the hero of hope and faith. But Abraham got called by God. He got the promise of God that he and his old wife would have a child. He got a covenant from God. He could take his spouse with him when he left. He could take his possessions and his servants and his wealth. Ruth had nothing. Ruth stands alone. Ruth leaves behind her country, her people, her religion. She was barren, but got no promise from God that she would ever have a child, be a mom. In a patriarchal world, this woman, Ruth, commits herself not to find a husband who can bring her hope, but to an old lady who has no hope at all. In an ethnocentric world, a Moabite, Moabites were so despised by the Israelites, they were not allowed to join the assembly. They worshiped the god Chemosh, uh, sometimes by offering human sacrifice. A despised Moabite will emigrate to Israel. And by the way, don't miss this moment. This is her conversion. Your God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the Ten Commandments, will be my God. And by the way, notice that she does this even though she never got a calling from heaven like Abraham did. Ruth is a fascinating book in this way. Uh, there is no divine guidance in it. There's no burning bush. There's no still small voice. There are no angelic visions. Nobody gets miraculously directed or healed or raised from the dead. Ruth has to make decisions on her own and muddle through life as best she can. Maybe your life is kind of like that. This might be a real good book for you. It's a real good book for ordinary people. Because the most daring act of hope and devotion in all of the Old Testament is done by a penniless, childless, pagan, uncalled Moabite widow. Go figure. When it comes to an act of faith, Ruth leaves even old father Abraham in the dust. As somebody once said of an old movie star named Ginger Rogers, who danced with the more renowned Fred Astaire, she did everything he did but backwards in high heels. Ruth did everything Abraham did but backwards in high heels. Two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Orpah responds to her loss by re-pursuing her same old hopes. Her choice made sense. She is not criticized in the text, not at all. Orpah did what any reasonable person would do. Ruth did. Ruth did what only an unreasonable person would do. We never hear of Orpah again. Her contrast with Ruth in this story is meant to raise these questions. I wonder maybe if my life right now is characterized by 
normal hopes, reasonable desires, not bad. But I haven't asked if maybe God has another deeper, costlier, riskier hope for me. Ruth makes this completely unexpected, unreasonable step. And if you were to ask her, Ruth, why would you do this? There's really only one answer. She was betting the farm on love. Not romantic love, quite the contrary. She has a hope, not that her circumstances would turn out a certain kind of way, but that the universe would turn out to be a certain kind of place where a costly act truly done in love would not be wasted. And Naomi can't talk her out of it. So they return together to Israel, to Naomi's old hometown of Bethlehem. The text says that the whole town is buzzing. They're so excited. It's our girl, Naomi, back after all these years. They're so excited. But then Naomi responds, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me kind of weird that this dark little speech made it into the Bible. For people who think that hope is a chirpy, saccharine, pain-avoidant form of religious denial for people who lack the courage to look reality square in the eye, that is not Naomi. Women, Naomi says, if you think I'm going to pretend like everything's okay just so you don't have to be bothered by my pain, you have another thing coming. With Naomi, it's not just that she says, my life stinks. She says, my life stinks, and it's God's fault. You listening, God? You want to comment, God? And again, the text doesn't comment on Naomi's speech. Doesn't say it's good. Doesn't say it's bad. It's just human. It's just real. And that's the only place where hope can start. Naomi has this going for her. She is honest with God. She believes that her God would prefer authentic complaint to fake optimism. So maybe today your hope adjustment starts here with just naming reality. Today, my life is bitter to me. The dream has died. I've lost what I treasured most. This person, this spouse, this child, this friend, this work, my suffering feels unbearable to me. Gang, hope has to start where you are, not where you think you should be, not where you wish you were. One more observation about Naomi here. Uh, this is often true of us when life disappoints us. She doesn't see her life altogether clearly. She speaks to these women in her old hometown only about herself. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. My life, the Lord afflicted me. The Lord brought misfortune on me. I left here full of husband and two sons. I came back alone. But then the narrator of the story very artfully points out, this is not quite true. The text goes on. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. No, 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 Naomi. You are not quite alone. Not quite. Ruth stands there, but Naomi, in her suffering and pain, seems not to notice. We all do this. We all tend to see life through our own pain, 
often hope begins, not necessarily when our pain lessens, but when we see the pain of somebody else and the thought comes, I could help. And that thought came to a childless widow named Ruth. I could help her. God has given you more than you know. God has always given us more than we know. So if you find yourself on this day, on this Mother's Day, on this caveat day, having lost some of what you hoped for, you might pause a moment right now to look next to you and see if your life is maybe, maybe, maybe not quite as empty as you thought. You have a friend. You have a church. You have a job. You have a home or a car or some gifts. You have an education. You have a mind. You have a Savior. You have a Savior. And I want you all to know, I'm not alone today. Some of the folks that are leading in worship are right here in this room with us. So I get to look at real life people. And if you're all excited, that phrase right there, you have a Savior, might actually prompt applause or smiles or something. And it could where you are, but it's true for you. You have a, no, it's gratuitous. Don't do it now. And it is this unnoticed gift, this unacknowledged daughter who begins the rebirth of hope for Naomi. Okay, so now we go into chapter two. And Ruth the Moabite. Notice, in the first chapter, when they're in Moab, Ruth is just Ruth. But now she's a stranger. Now she's an alien. Now she's unwanted. Now she's not just Ruth. Now she's Ruth the Moabite. Amazing story. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Now, this is a striking development as we enter into this story. To go alongside the institutionalized poor of Israel to try to avoid starving by gleaning leftover grain. I was talking to a friend uh, yesterday who's involved in a global ministry, and he was saying, you know, what folks are facing in a lot of places in the world right now in this pandemic is not just hunger, it's starving. They can't go to work because the pandemic could strike them down. If they stay home, they will starve. And to go alongside of that part of the human population to identify that's hitting bottom. Nobody hopes for that. Now, again, Ruth the Moabite didn't have to do that. She could go home to Moab. She could find a man. Not just that, part of what's striking in this statement is she's a foreigner, a Gentile, likely to be shunned or worse. In fact, later on in the book, it says that the men in the fields who are gleaning have to be warned not to touch her. This is often quite a dangerous world for a woman. And yet she's willing to do this. Not just willing to do it, it's her idea. She initiates this plan. She actually asked Naomi's permission so that she will not offend her mother-in-law by publicly revealing their poverty. Not just that, she has somehow, she believes, reason to hope that somebody out there is going to look with favor on a Moabite woman. Where does this hope come from? So I want to uh, take a moment right now in the middle of this story to look at the emotion of hope, the experience of hope, so that you can learn how to adjust it. 
Uh, it's important to know the difference as we try to grow hope as followers of Jesus between a physical sensation, a physical feeling, and an emotion. Physical sensations have causes. If somebody asks, why are you itchy? I would give them a cause. It might be because I wore a wool shirt or I have a rash. And I would never criticize you for itching. You just itch. Emotions are different. Emotions have reasons. Let's say I'm driving and a woman behind me keeps honking at me. And my wife asks me, why are you so angry at that woman? I'll tell you why. Because she keeps honking at me. It ticks me off. I give her an extended version of my dirtiest look. And then she pulls up alongside me and gestures, my left rear tire is wobbling and about to come off. That's why she's been honking. She wasn't being rude. She was being kind. Now I'm not grateful anymore. I mean, I'm not angry anymore. I'm grateful, grateful that she was trying to help me. She was trying to save my life, grateful that she doesn't go to our church. My anger was based on a false belief, so it was actually wrong. It's very important to understand about emotional growth. Your therapist may have been saying to you for years, an emotion can't be right or wrong. It's just a feeling. And hearing me say a feeling can be wrong might make you mad. Well, your therapist was wrong, and you should feel grateful. Now, hope, if it's going to be the real thing, needs a reason. Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is in you. Remember, hope requires both wanting and believing. Now, if I want something really, really badly, but I believe I'll never get it, then I experience despair. High want plus no belief equals despair. And then my life is bitter. Then I am Mara. Now, one way to deal with this, because none of us can survive indefinitely on despair, one way to deal with this is to get myself to not want it so much. I try to ratchet down my want. I tell myself I can live without it. Low want plus no belief is resignation. Resignation is often a healthy way to handle a lot of my small hopes. I will never be Oprah. I'll never bench press 300 pounds. I will never serve Mavericks. I will never play keyboards for you two. I've just resigned myself to that. However, however, each of us has what might be called a master desire, what the Danish thinker Søren Kierkegaard called an essential passion. Your essential passion is what you desire above all else, that desire that outranks all of your other wants. An essential passion is what can integrate and unify a life. It's the foundation on which your life stands. So choose your essential passion wisely. And Ruth had chosen hers. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Love. Love for God and then love for people had become the essential passion of Ruth's life was this woman? Now, children are born with what might be called pre-reflective optimism. They just, we have a built-in bias that we're going to get what we want, what we pursue. Our grandson, Chance, is the child of coffee drinkers. 
and he likes that smell. When he wakes up in the morning, every morning he'll stand up in his crib and yell, I want beans, I want beans, turning into a little caffeine addict. He believes they're coming, and they are. But sooner or later, that kind of pre-reflective optimism in children hits a wall, and we all have to adjust to reality. Now, you can resign yourself to any finite outcome. You can downgrade your desire for anything else. I'll never own this, drive that, work there, marry her, look like him. But you need, you must have an essential passion that is worthy of your life and that is certain for your destiny. And that is God, is the testimony of the writers of Scripture. Only God author by the name of Robert Roberts notes that Paul did not say, may the God of resignation fill you with tolerance for your destiny. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace so that you overflow with hope. Ruth chose the love of the God of hope as her essential passion, and therefore she was full of hope in a situation that was not hopeful. Hoping as opposed to wishing, has a very strong bias toward action. Resignation doesn't act much. Hope does. Hope acts. Despair quits. So Ruth acts in hope. Let me go glean, she says to her mother-in-law. And now, when she takes action in hope, things begin to happen. A man named Boaz sees her in the field, and he asks a fascinating question. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, Whose young woman is that? And of course, the short and amazing answer was, she was nobody's woman. Now, in the ancient world, if you were a woman, you were somebody's woman. Your identity was dependent on your relationship to a man. You were your father's daughter, or you were your husband's wife. That's who you were. For Ruth to spurn everything her culture said a woman was to risk it all in order to express her love for another woman, her mother-in-law, that was a courageously subversive act. Now, Boaz is not irritated by this. He's not threatened by this. To the contrast, he marvels, he admires Ruth's devotion to Naomi. And he watches out for her in a real tender way. And in a wonderful detail of the story, when Boaz is a little slow in the romance department, Ruth actually proposes to Boaz. She knows that since Boaz is a relative of Naomi, if she marries Boaz in that culture, that means that Boaz will care for Naomi as well. This is an amazingly generous gesture on her part. And Boaz, again, marvels at Ruth's heart. He says, this kindness, that is her desire to get married to Boaz, is greater than before. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, is Boaz saying a relatively mature man can't be dashing and debonair? <laughs> Apparently so. Uh, no hope for that. But mostly, this was extreme modesty, just considered polite in the ancient Near East. You could have way more handsome men than me. It's a polite thing for the guy to say. He would expect the woman to say, no, 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 you're really good looking. And Ruth and Boaz end up getting married. And oh, by the way, and oh, by the way, and oh, by the way, they have a son. And the women of Bethlehem, kind of the chorus in this story, get together once again like they did way back in the first chapter and praise God 
And they're all excited again. And they bless Naomi. And they say to her, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Are you kidding me? One woman and a daughter-in-law at that is worth better than seven sons? That's the kind of story that will make you think through patriarchy and the worth of a woman all over again. And Naomi says, the Lord has not stopped showing his kindness. I thought he had. I was bitter, but I was wrong. And she is not Mara anymore. She is Naomi. She is herself again. And she holds that little baby in her arms, not just a baby, that's, that's eight pounds of hope. And oh, by the way, the baby's name is Obed, and he would grow up and have a boy named Jesse, and Jesse would grow up and have a boy named David. And David would grow up and become king, even though David was one-eighth Moab. King David was one-eighth Moab. And then one day, there was a son of David named Jesus, and Ruth is in his genealogy, which means there's a little Moab in Jesus too, which means now there's hope for anybody, even, even Moabites. So today, Mother's Day, caveat day, I'd invite you to do a little hope adjustment. Whether it is a hurt or a loss or a disappointment, or gut-wrenching grief in your life. Bring it to God. He'll give you wisdom to know what the right course of action is. But make real clear your essential passion, not just the things that you hope for, but the one you hope in. Do all of your human hope adjustments in light of the one unchanging hope. And then for today, ask this question, like Ruth, who might I bring hope to? Our hope practice this week is serving. Uh, you can join in this practice by downloading the devotional guide from our website, menlo.church slash the way of hope. And I was reading through that this week. Uh, it will serve you really, really well. When Ruth served Naomi, see, she wasn't just bringing her grain. She wasn't just bringing her food. She was bringing her hope. I heard this week about a life group at our church of married couples, and the couples without children decided to each make one meal a week for the couples with kids that are just getting pretty frenzied through this season. That's serving. What a gracious, generous thing to do. That's bringing hope. It can be that small. What Ruth did has brought hope in the darkness now for thousands of years. I was uh, reading a book recently about uh, that year when England and Winston Churchill stood alone against Hitler in Nazi Germany. And at one point, Franklin Roosevelt sent to England from the U.S. his closest, closest confidant. He was a frail, small little advisor named Harry Hopkins uh, in really bad health, already in the grip of a disease that would eventually kill him. By this time, all of Europe had fallen to Hitler. Austria, Poland, 
Belgium, Holland, Norway, France. And Churchill, of course, gave this gift of just defiant hope to England that Hitler could be defeated. That even if he would not, it would be better for them, as Churchill put it, to die choking on their own blood than to surrender to this evil tyrant. But it was clear England alone would not be able to prevail. They would need the help of the United States. And the U.S. public was in the grip of a real strong isolationist movement called America First. And so Churchill turned all of his considerable powers of persuasion and charm on Harry Hopkins to get help from Franklin Roosevelt and the United States. And at the end of Hopkins' visit, there is an amazing scene, a great banquet in Glasgow, Scotland. And at the end of the banquet, Hopkins said to Churchill, I suppose you would like to know what I shall tell the president when I return. Well, that was an understatement. The fate of the civilized world is in the balance. Churchill and everybody in the room hold their breath. Would the U.S. walk with England, a path that would mean blood and tears and sacrifice and death together? Or would it withdraw while the world fell under the shadow of genocide and barbarism and evil beyond description? Would there be hope? And Hopkins said, you probably want to know what I will say to the president. Well, I'm going to quote to him one verse from the book of books in the truth of which my own Scottish mother was raised. And then his voice dropped to nearly a whisper, and he quoted, Whither thou goest, I will go. Whither thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people will be my people. Thy God will be my God. And Churchill is great. You know, defiant lion of England just wept like a baby, like a baby. And one of the attenders wrote, we all knew what it meant. It was a rope thrown to a drowning man. There is hope. Whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people will be my people, and thy God will be my God. That's the story. We're going to close with a song that pronounces the blessing that has given hope to God's people now for thousands of years. And you need these words. I want to beg you, don't check out. Don't go on autopilot. If you've got to give the kids some cupcakes to keep them quiet for another couple of minutes, give them some cupcakes. Just hear these words. Don't sing them. Sit still and receive them. It's amazing that God told the very first priest, Aaron, that this was the blessing with which God's people are to be blessed. God said, tell them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. There is no Beauty in all the world like the beauty of a shining face. That's what a grandparent's face does when they hold that little grandbaby. There are not enough words to express what is in their heart, so their face takes over. They shine. They beam. 
That's what Naomi's old, old face did when she held that little child. That's what God wants to do over you right now. That's the love he wants to give you right now. That is the foundation hope that alone is worthy of being your essential passion in life and in death. So be still. Be very, very, very still. And receive the blessing of God.